let's go find a different way to get our stories into the world. This is Heart of the Story, and I'm Nadine Kenny Johnstone. I'm a writer and a writing coach who helps women develop and publish their memoirs and essays. But most importantly, I'm a human who's always trying to figure out what my soul is saying. Each week, I'll share stories and tips of healing, hope, and following my heart so that you'll feel inspired to follow yours. So you well know by now how important it is in my mind, for women to get their work out in the world. It's why I'm a writing coach. It's why I teach Publish the Personal to help you get your essays published as well. My mission in life is for women writers to be published so that other people can read their amazing stories. And because of that, you will see why I absolutely loved, loved, loved my conversation with literary agent April Eberhardt. Oh, you are in for such a treat with this conversation. On this episode, she talks about what the state of the publishing industry looks like today, how it has changed over the last 10 years, and actually for the better how attainable it actually is to get published nowadays, and how you can go down that path starting today. It was such a hopeful conversation. It was such a reassuring conversation. It was like opening the door to the secret world where the literary agents live and realizing that there are incredible people on the other side who really want your work in print. So if you have felt like literary agents in the world of publishing I feel like such a gate-kept community and world, and you don't know how to get through that door, you are going to absolutely love this conversation with literary agent April Eberhardt. Hi, friends. Today, I'm so, so, so excited because literary change agent April Eberhardt is joining me today to talk about all of the things that we want to know <laughs> when we're looking for an agent or we're looking to get published and we're feeling like it's impossible. I wanted to bring April on today because first of all, she is such a kind, generous soul. And when I met her at the San Miguel Writers Conference years ago, I just knew right away that she was in this industry for all of the right reasons. She is so generous. She is so much of a connector for people, and she really supports and fosters writers' careers. And I couldn't think of anyone better to have on the show to talk about the world of publishing and how to navigate it without losing your mind. <laughs> April, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nadine. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Yes, I am so thrilled. So in order to give listeners a bit of background information, can you tell us how you describe what you do and then how you got there? I'd be happy to. 
I call myself a literary change agent, as you mentioned earlier, because I believe the traditional publishing industry that most people believe they know and aspire to has changed drastically over the last 10, 12 years. And as opposed to the olden days, meaning 10 years ago, when you could count on finding an agent who would find you a publisher who would then do all they could to publish your book and promote it, the world is much more self-service now. And I find that because of the number of writers, which has expanded exponentially, and the number of publishing slots on any traditional publisher's list is much smaller, it's really become important and necessary for authors to think about other ways to be published besides the traditional agent finds publisher makes an author famous route. That unfortunately doesn't happen very often. And increasingly it's focused on the big names, people who have already written successful novels or books. Those are the ones that publishers put their bets on. So for the newer writers and particularly for women writers, which is really my market, women over a certain age, it's very, very difficult to break in. And so my goal is to help women authors, particularly those who are writing their first and sometimes their only work, to find a way to be published that is satisfying to them and may well be outside the traditional publishing industry mode. And so what got you, first of all, excited about this industry and how did you really start to dip your toes in it way back when? Well, my whole career has been a series of careers, really seven different careers, very circuitous path. Um, (laughs) I have an MBA in finance and marketing. So I started out in the business world, first working for an insurance company. Uh, Then I was a banker for many years, focused on lending to companies. That was a springboard into management consulting, where I was helping big companies become either better at what they do or enter new markets. So it was all very, very business focused and frankly, really a world of men. I mean, this was many, many years ago and there were not that many women in the financial industry. So it was a very exciting time, but it was also a very frustrating time because I I came to learn that there really is a different way of operating in a man's world. And so after several years of being reasonably successful in this world. You know, I was made a partner in consulting. And once you're made a partner in an organization, you do the same study again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And I could feel my world narrowing as opposed to broadening. So I, uh, I cashed out of the consulting world and went into the business of women's fashion Mm -hmm. because in those years, people were still dressing up for work, dressing up for evenings. (laughs) Remember that long ago? (laughs) That was so, I know now we're all sitting around in the most casual clothing in the world, but there was a real disconnect. I thought between the idea that women love to shop and the fact that many of the business women, including myself, didn't really have time to shop, but needed to look a certain way. And so I created a very niche business, which was a a semi-custom women's clothing design firm and did that for many, many years and had a blast. And I realized I really loved working within the world of women as opposed to working within the world of men. Not that I don't like men. I love men. I'm married to a wonderful man myself, but it was a whole different dynamic to work with women. And I realized that that was something that I really enjoyed. So I did that for a number of years and eventually it became apparent that, you know, much like the publishing industry, the clothing industry was really difficult to crack and make a dent in. So I eventually cashed out of that and 
was kind of at loose ends for a bit. And uh, a friend of mine said, oh, well, you know, the literary magazine Zoetrope is looking for a, a head reader. And I thought, well, that sounds interesting. I like to read. I'm a woman. You know, I, I, I know a lot of women who read. And so I applied for that. And uh, so for several years became the head reader for Zoetrope, All Story, which is uh, Francis Ford Coppola's literary magazine. And really came to enjoy it. And one of my readers, I had a whole team of readers, 30, 35, one of them left to become a literary agent. And I didn't even know really what a literary agent was. So I took her out to lunch and I said, so Michelle, what is, what do you do? And she said, well, I read manuscripts and I select the ones that I think seem to have the most commercial appeal. And then I sell them to publishers and then I market them. And I thought, bingo, this is what I want to do. So I joined a Bay Area literary agency worked with them for a couple of years to kind of learn the ropes and then went out on my own because I realized that I really wanted to focus on first time women authors writing works that would otherwise be lost in the shuffle. And so that's really been my focus all these years. I do represent a few male authors, but by and large, I really like to work with first time women authors who, again, are writing their first and sometimes their only manuscript, be it fiction or nonfiction. So that's a long, circuitous story. That's how I got here. <laughs> I always love when I think I know somebody's background a bit, and then I learn completely new, interesting details. It also all makes sense now because you're always so well-dressed at the conference. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> you always have a great sense of style. So I'm like, ah, no, it's all coming together. Thank you. I, I still really enjoy fashion, but as you and I both know, it's taken a backseat to life now, particularly after the pandemic, fashion is not what it used to be. But anyway, thank you. I'll, I accept and, and appreciate the compliment. <laughs> you know, I have to say I'm one of those rare people that, so I primarily work out of my home office, but every day I put on like I'm only wearing, you can't really tell what I'm wearing from the, from the waist up here, but like, I always put on nice pants and I put on like a top that I would wear out. I usually like to put on earrings or something. Me I too. at least try to make earrings. We both have them. <laughs> <laughs> I try to at least like replicate when I would used to go to the university. It's like, all right, would I wear this if I were teaching at the university? Yes, I would. Okay. Then it's acceptable. There's something about it that just tricks my brain into a professional realm. And I actually usually once a week, just like to get dressed up, maybe it's Friday night or Saturday night. Mm -hmm. um, even if my husband and son and I are just going somewhere kind of casual for dinner, I'll put on a skirt and I'll put on makeup. <laughs> There's something about it that I miss dearly. Um, but then I also love that working from home midday, I could go walk to the beach or paddle. So I appreciate both, but I do miss a bit of that kind of professional dress. But anywho, I digress. <laughs> I can relate to that. Well, I'll just give you a very a less than one minute anecdote. When I spend time in Paris, naturally everybody compared to what we wear, people really dress up. And while I was there in September, I was invited to a black tie gala at the British embassy. And I kind of panicked. I thought, oh my gosh, what am I going to wear? So I dug through what I had brought. Nothing was quite up to snuff. So a friend of mine lent me a whole bag of her evening gowns from which I was able to select. But it was so funny because I have never in my life before worried about what I was going to wear. And I suddenly thought, 
oh my gosh, I'm on stage. I mean, I was the guest of the head of the committee running this thing and she was all dressed up, even had her hair done. And so I had to really, I had to really brush up uh, on my, my fashion game there. I think it, it, it all worked fine, but it's a whole different culture and a really a dressier wardrobe there than here. So it's almost living in a, a bifurcated world of being very formal, very dressed up and casual to the point of hiking clothes. Oh, yes. Okay. Well, come back to Paris too, because I want to talk about that so much. But you touched on something that is very near and dear to both of our hearts, which is supporting women writers. Both of us primarily work with women. And why did you choose in particular to focus on women and especially first time authors? Well, I think because my own personal tastes run to women's fiction. That is really my favorite. Short stories, long stories, novels, whatever. I really enjoy women's fiction. It's a way for me to try on someone else's persona as a reader and and look at life in a different way and approach my own challenges and issues through someone else's eyes and how she's dealt with it in her novel or a short story. I find that men's work tends to, and I'm making a gross generalization here, have a lot of harder edges and tends to deal more with the exterior as opposed to the interior world. And I'm really much more interested in the interior world. What makes us tick? What helps us change? How do we get past obstacles, et cetera? So that's why I tend to favor women's work as opposed to men's. It's just a sensibility that I can relate to as a woman. Um, What was the other question you asked me? Uh, First time. Yeah, Yeah, first time. Well, I think it's because so many, I I think women in general aren't seen and heard in our society, in the world as much as men. That's no news to you or to anybody else here. And particularly as women, as we all age, those stories get more important. Sometimes people, women just feel they need to tell their story and it's hard to be seen and heard and listened to. Mm -hmm. And so I really try to support that by representing women who have a story and want to tell that story and, and again, need to be seen and heard. And that very much relates to uh, retreats. I think retreats are a wonderful way to do that. But in general, my mission is to really help women tell their story, tell it as as, uh, powerfully as possible and find an audience for it. And there's no guarantee. In fact, as you well know, most books are not bestsellers. They don't, sometimes they don't sell more than a thousand copies. But the point is for those authors to have had a chance to put their work out in the world and have other people read it and relate to it is very important. I think that's critical. And so that's the mission. That's my mission. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly. I mean, I also am married to a wonderful man and we have a son who's nine. So it's not that I don't have deep love for the men in my life, but as women, we understand how important it is to have our voices heard and to raise the voices of other women. And so as much as possible, if I and we can support women writers and getting their stories out there, Mm -hmm. that's one more female voice in the world. That's one more woman putting their story out in the world so that some other female feels less alone or is able to relate to them. Exactly. And so, yeah, I really, really appreciate your mission. And when a person comes to you Mm -hmm. and is going, okay, I'm a first time female author. Can we work together? What is it primarily that you find that you're looking for from the agent standpoint? Are there 
sort of alerts of, oh, I know that the writing will be strong when, or I know that this is going to be a good narrative arc when, is, are there any telltale signs of good writing? Uh, well, again, the, the, this is a bit of a cliche, but the story really needs to jump off the first page. Yeah. And if I'm not gripped by the first page, I'm assuming readers will not be, and they will not give the book a chance. And so it is very important to start off with a very, very, very strong first page, first chapter. And that often means beginning on what ends up being page 47 of the manuscript. Someone will say, well, the story really begins here. And I'll say, all right, well, then 47 becomes one. And then we will do flashbacks and talk about the backstory. But you really need to grip the reader right away. And in the old trope, we always say this, who, what, where, and why should we care? And you need to know who the protagonist is, what the story is about, where it takes place, and why we should care about it. And you really have to achieve that in the first page. Mm -hmm. Frequently, I, I find that I refer many authors to developmental editors, and I have a small group of really wonderful developmental editors I work with, who for a fee will work with the author to rearrange the story and then to amp up the parts that really, really need more emphasis and then sometimes cut, you know, killing your darlings, cut parts of the story out that don't really further the narrative. You need to move the story forward on every single page. And in fairness to most of us, when we sit down and write our story, we don't think about that. We're not thinking about the narrative tension and how you have to grab the reader right away. You're telling your story, but a developmental editor will help hone that story to a point where it's going to be more compelling to readers. Yes. I'm thinking of a writer I worked with who has a fabulous book. And when we first started working together, I said, do you need these first 11 chapters? <laughs> and she was like, what? <laughs> right, that's I, said, I think this story really begins here. Yes. And over time she understood that. And it's a wonderful manuscript and it got published. But yes, it's that, that moment of after a while, sometimes we're so close to the narrative that it's hard to see that really the story begins five chapters in or on page 46. Or 11. That's a lot yeah. of chapters. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so say you start working with someone. Mm -hmm. I, I think that so many writers feel like the agent world is a gate kept world. Like it feels completely unattainable to even get an agent nowadays. Mm -hmm. So what is that process like for you? Uh, do you take queries? How does it usually work? And, and then once someone starts working with you, what is that partnership like? Okay. Yes. In the olden days, meaning pre-pandemic, I met most authors through conferences. As you know, you and I met at San Miguel. I was doing 10 or 12 conferences a year all over the world and had the opportunity to meet hundreds of writers, both men and women. And so that was the primary feeder system for the types of manuscripts that I ended up taking on. Now, because conferences have largely, well, they, they basically stopped for two years and now so many conferences are being held virtually that I find most of the queries come in over the transom. And, you know, I'm on the web. Everyone's on the web. People find us various ways. And so I get a, I get mm, all of my queries really now through email or frequently by referral from other authors I've worked with. 
And so, you know, I look at them and make a quick determination as to A, whether this is something that I would be interested in representing. Frequently, I get queries for romance and sci-fi and, and things like that. I don't work in genre work. I really work in what I would call women's book club fiction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's usually a story about somebody whose life is going along just fine. And then all of a sudden, it hits a big bump in the road. Either someone dies or her husband leaves her. There's usually some bump in the road and then she resolves it. She figures out a way around either to figure out a way to stay within the situation and have it work or finds a new path forward. Those are the types of things I like. So I have a fairly narrow band of what I look for. And frankly, I'm not so sure that authors should be so focused on finding an agent because again, there are relatively few of us as agents compared to the number of authors looking for agents. And because there are so many other publishing alternatives now, I encourage people to give it their very best for a year. Try to find an agent, do your homework, look on publishers, marketplace, figure out who the right agents would be, go to conferences. And then if you're unable to find an agent within a year or so, transition your efforts to what I call plan B, which is to find a different way to publish. And there's now hybrid publishing. There is self-publishing, which has become a completely legitimate way of publishing. Uh, And I would rather have someone get their work published than to continue to grind their wheels, trying to find an agent, and then years down the road, find that they're still not published. Oh, such good points. Such good points. I, I think nowadays people are so... I don't know, nervous about, okay, if I don't get an agent, if I don't go the traditional publishing route, will I still be a valid writer? Will people still have respect for my manuscript? And I have to reassure people more and more nowadays that the traditional path to publishing is a narrower and narrower road every year that passes. <laughs> and uh, well put, yeah. Yeah. And oftentimes it's kind of reserved for not only writers who are established, but those who have a large influencer network, celebrities, mm-hmm. and those with a, a very large online following, because mm-hmm. after all, it's a business. So I try to give reassurance to writers who want to maybe explore different paths. So you've spoken a bit about hybrid and self-publishing, but if you were to give an assessment assessment of what the publishing industry looks like nowadays and how it's different than maybe 10 years ago. What is your state of the market view right now? Uh, Well, that's a good question. My state of the market view is that really, if you are already a famous author, you have a really high chance of being republished, although not necessarily by the same house. I see many famous names hopping from house to house to house because their prior book didn't sell enough to make the cut for the next one. Mm. But but fame helps. Fame and a track record really helps. But I would say that for authors who aspire to be published, I really urge them not to focus on fame and fortune, but rather to be read, to to know that you know have a clear idea of who your readers are and to find a way to reach them even if that means fewer. It's very rare now unfortunately for authors to become big name hits overnight and to make a lot of money. It tends to be the same authors writing sort of the same kind of books again and again and again. And I don't mean that to sound cynical, but publishing is an industry, they're a business. And so they know that their chances are better 
if they republish work by a well-known author than to publish something by a new author and have to climb that publicity ladder, which is time consuming and expensive to them and doesn't necessarily guarantee profits at the end of the road. So again, I, I guess what I'm saying is uh, don't don't fixate on on finding an agent and then finding a traditional publisher because as you well said, the road is narrowing now. And it is, in my opinion, better to get your work out there and have it read and acknowledged. And fame is in the mind of the the beholder. You know, if I many authors I've worked with have sold, you know, a thousand copies, and they have been really pleased with that because the thousand copies they have sold have been two people who appreciated the book and end up, you know, either complimenting it online or giving it a five star review on Amazon, which of course is a game unto itself. But if they feel that they've gotten the recognition and the validation by finding their readers in, in some way, shape, or form, and it's usually smaller than what they initially had anticipated. Mm-hmm. It brings us to the question of what is a writer really hoping for, right? And so you mentioned, you know, what is your end goal? Asking a writer this question, what is your end goal? Is it fame? Is it money? Well, for most of us, it's really to be read, as you said, mm-hmm. to have our stories heard. And so if you can find a way to make that happen, whether it be hybrid or guided self-publishing, whatever avenue, I, in my opinion, think it's better than the manuscript staying in a drawer forever, hiding away. (laughs) I agree a thousand percent. There's nothing sadder than knowing that someone's story that she has worked so hard to craft and tell is still sitting on her hard drive as opposed to out in the world being read by a select group of readers. Yeah. Yes. What are some kind of stories or anecdotes that you're really proud of as an agent, um, an author or some books that you've represented where you're just really happy for that writer, for the journey that their book took them on? Oh, that's a hard one because I have to say I'm, I'm proud of so many of the authors I've had a chance to work with. I think the ones I'm probably proudest of are the ones who, after our very best efforts to find a traditional publisher, did not become discouraged, but instead said, great, I'm disappointed that we didn't find a traditional publisher. Let's go find a different way to get our stories into the world. And those, to me, are really the signs of success that you managed to do. And one author I worked with for many years has had a lot of success with her first two novels. And the third one, interestingly, was the foreign rights were acquired, but we have not been able to place it with a traditional publisher. And so she decided to teach herself self-publishing. And she spent well over a year really learning the craft and the the business of self-publishing and has self-published the third book in her trilogy. And it's doing quite well. I, as her agent, am only involved in the foreign rights side because I was able to place those. She is benefiting from having self-published it in the U.S., but I am thrilled for her and impressed for her because, again, this is what she wanted. She knew it was a good story, and although we couldn't find a U.S. publisher who agreed enough to to publish it, she went forth and did it herself. And so now it's doing well both domestically as well as overseas. And I I have great admiration for her, even though it means that, you know, I as an agent am not actively involved in her, the domestic publication of her third book, more power to her. She figured out how to to get it out there and I'm thrilled for her. 
So that would be an example of an, an author who just wouldn't say no, wouldn't take no for an answer. I love that. I think it is very common for writers to become discouraged with the rejection. So many Mm -hmm. of the questions I get are around how to keep you going when you feel quote unquote rejected. I so often have to remind the women in my community that the people I know who've been published the most are the people I know who've been rejected the most. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so after a while, it's kind of like a numbers game or an odds game, especially say when you're trying to place essays or something like this, it's like, okay, send out, send out, try not to take it too personally, unless seven editors are saying the same problematic thing about your essay, then, then it has some validity, Mm -hmm. but in terms of book projects, I so badly feel the desire to encourage women writers that just because one path isn't working, please don't give up. Mm -hmm. So that agent said no, or that publishing house, it didn't work out, or the traditional path isn't working out please don't stop yourself there. And so I'm so inspired by the writer you worked with that taught herself self-publishing and went that route and wouldn't be held back. Exactly. And she did a beautiful job. Again, she is a businesswoman herself and made it a point to learn the business. And again, I blessed it all the way along when she said, this is what I'm going to do. I said, great, that makes sense. But she really spent a lot of time and energy learning the business. So when she did self-publish her book, it is a real book. It's got a professional cover. It is properly edited. It is properly laid out. It's available in both print form and e-form. And I, it may be available by audio now as well. Her first book sold, we sold the audio rights right away. And so, you know, she really took the time to learn the business and and acknowledge that that there is more than one road to any destination. And so she took a different, she decided not to be daunted by the traditional route, but chose a different, a different path. And if you could give a bit of advice of if someone really does want to work with an agent. What are some of the good signs to look out for, for a good agent writer relationship? What should that look Mm -hmm. like? And then I'll ask my, my part two question in a second. What does an agent writer relationship look like when it's working well? Well, I think it's, it's like any relationship. It needs to be uh, respectful, open, two-way conversation, good communication, responding. I think, you know, silence is the new no. And I, Mm. I find it so disheartening and so rude when people don't respond. And I understand that for some of the biggest agents, they are probably inundated, but it seems to me that it's a fairly quick fix to be able to say, thanks, but not for me, best of luck. Mm-hmm. And many agents have that that auto response on their computer. So when they see something they don't like, they can respond. But I find it so frustrating in life and in publishing when authors are left dangling for a long period of time and they just don't know where they stand. But I always say after a certain number of months, if you have not heard back from an agent, assume the answer is no. Many agents say that on their website. If you don't hear back from us, assume it's a no. But I advise authors to put a time limit on it. Don't drive yourselves crazy. Again, last I checked, none of this is getting any younger. (laughs) And so rather than just let time spool forward indefinitely, it's better to put a time limit on it and say a year. 
I will look at Publishers Marketplace. I, that, I think that is probably the best source. To subscribe to Publishers Marketplace for a month or maybe two. I think it's $25 a month. Anyone can subscribe. And it really is the industry go-to spot for which agents represent which authors, what the name of the books are, which publishers they, they sold them to. And, and then there's a brief paragraph about the book. And you can find out a whole lot. You can really narrow down your search by looking at Publishers Marketplace and studying it to see who has represented works like yours. Mm. And then go forth, put together a, a very consolidated quick query letter, send it out to them. You can send it simultaneously. And then when uh, agents ask for your manuscript, send it to them properly formatted, double spaced, however they ask, either in the body of the email or as an attachment, everyone has their own particulars and then give it your best. And after a while, if you haven't found an agent, then start looking at some of these other paths. Mm -hmm. I love that sentence that silence is the new no. It's Oh, it's, it's unfortunate, but I find that it's true. And I've talked to different writers who will say, well, it seemed like this person was interested, but then I haven't heard anything for a while now. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it is that sort of thing. It, it's almost like in the dating world, right? Mm-hmm. Assume that if you haven't heard back for a little bit, there is an interest, though it's sad and you wish that there would just be some courage on the other end or time on the other end to say thanks, but no thanks. Mm-hmm. More and more, I am finding that writers are just getting the non-response, which essentially is a no. So mm-hmm. I, I do think even sometimes when writers become uh, in partnership with agents, that even then there can be little red flags of, all right, maybe this was a good partnership, but I seem to be the last priority. Mm -hmm. I'm really not getting responses much or quickly or at all even. And so so Mm -hmm. this probably isn't, isn't going well. And I love Publishers Marketplace not only because it shows the the deals that they've done, who they've represented, but mm-hmm. their contact information. That search is half the battle of how do I get a hold of this agent? Well, many of them mm-hmm. don't have their emails at the ready online because they get so inundated with queries. That's right. So Publishers Marketplace allows you to see what proper email address to send it to. And that takes away a lot of the online Google search down the rabbit hole of hell. <laughs> so. The rabbit hole of hell. That's well put. No, you're absolutely right. And and if they some agents don't have an e-address on Publishers Marketplace, which suggests that they probably don't want to be contacted. Mm-hmm. So go for the ones who have their addresses. And I always, you know, again, I'm a stickler for manners. I think that you say, you know, please and thank you and no thanks and and let people know rather than let them float out there in the world. But as you point out in the dating world, that's the norm now, ghosting. And in the publishing world, it's the same. People just don't respond sometimes. And so I figure if, if you have an agent or you have a query out there, someone has asked for your, your manuscript but hasn't responded, it's fine to say after a certain number of weeks or months, eight weeks is minimum usually, you may recall you asked for my manuscript. I haven't heard from you. I'd appreciate the courtesy of a reply. And if that doesn't flush out an answer, then nothing will. I, I just don't know what else you can do. Don't call them. Don't bug them. If they, after two or, th- or three efforts, 
three attempts, you haven't heard from them, that probably means they're not interested. And again, it's frustrating, but it's just, it's the way of the world, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. The other two sites I'll mention is there's something called agentquery.com and querytracker.com. Those aren't as robust as Publishers Marketplace is, but they do have information about agents who are currently looking for queries or actively looking for authors to represent. So I would suggest that in addition to Publishers Marketplace, that authors look at Agent Query and Query Tracker as well. And April, is there anything within the query letter that is a real attention grabber. I mean, certainly there's kind of the typical format that an agent would expect to see, like a one-liner and then a good paragraph, sometimes competitive title analysis, a little bit of bio. Is there anything else you would expect to see in the query or that you say, I'm always on the lookout for this in the query letter? Oh, I think I, I I always recognize and appreciate a letter that's succinct and to the point and covers the information you just gave. If, if For those people listening to this who are not familiar with Jane Friedman, Jane Friedman is really the guru of everything publishing. And she does have, among millions of other posts, one about how to write a good query letter. And I would I would subscribe to that. I would abide by that. Don't put in a lot of extra information that isn't pertinent to your query. If an agent's interest is piqued by your query letter, she can come back to you and ask for more, but keep it short. Keep it really short and really succinct. Include the information required that you just mentioned that it on is on Jane's site. And don't add a whole lot of other information because it's just, again, we get hundreds or if not thousands of queries, and we really want to be able to hone in quickly on what your manuscript's about. And is it something that would would fit with our what we're looking for? Mm-hmm. Short and sweet. <laughs> yes, I can't emphasize the short and sweet enough. I'm so glad you said it because I just recently did an episode on pitching, how to write a successful pitch, whether you're trying to get an article published or even trying to apply for a job or trying to get a speaking engagement somewhere. A short, succinct pitch or query is great. I feel like the longer we go on, we shoot ourselves in the foot. So, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Like very short and very succinct. Yeah. And so, one of the many fun things you get to do, given your position, is that you love to travel and you love to go to writers' conferences, but you also host writing retreats. So, mm-hmm. tell us a bit about how that came to be and why often you end up in Paris. (laughs) Well, I end up in Paris because I love Paris and I will find anything, any reason or any excuse to go to Paris. But I also love France in general beyond Paris. And the retreats that I hold have traditionally been in a friend's chateau out in the countryside. It's about two hours southwest of Paris. Mm -hmm. For me, it's really the perfect venue because it accommodates about 10 people got 10 rooms, a lot of bathrooms. It's a beautiful, beautiful spot. And we limit the group to six women. Although next summer, I do think I'll be holding a retreat that will be mixed, as they say, some men as well as women, because many men have expressed interest. But it's a week-long intensive, really designed for authors to get away from the distractions of their daily life, be able to focus exclusively on a story that they want to tell, Again, be seen and be heard, be supported, and be transformed in some way. And I think we all have had a chance to get away from our everyday lives and then suddenly look back and think, wow, 
that two or three or seven days was really transformative because I was able to step out of my usual life and all the distractions and be able to focus on something that's really important to me. The other aspect of retreats that I find really wonderful is that I've done these for a number of years now, and the authors who attend these become really fast friends. They become part of writers groups. They travel together. They they become friends and colleagues. And it's really wonderful to see this bonding that occurs as a result of this intensive week away together in one place. And we have some authors who come back every year. They're writing sometimes the same thing, sometimes something different, but we'll come back every single year because they love the experience of being in this beautiful place, being fed and housed, wined and dined. Mm -hmm. They don't have to cook and they don't have to do laundry. They really get to focus on themselves and their work. So it's a literary event, but it's almost a life focus event. It gives people a chance to, to step out of their normal lives and really focus on themselves. And, and you know this too, Nadine, because I know you host a number of retreats, but it's really, it's a wonderful experience for people. And being in France is uh, is a real vacation for many and a, really a lovely place to be. Mm, yes. There's nothing better as a retreat leader than stepping back and watching the writers within the group become friends without really much of your involvement. Mm -hmm. They form these bonds that can last a lifetime afterwards, which is yes. so incredible to have witnessed and be a part of. Um, but you have such a great point that I think why I'm such a, a supporter and encourager of retreats is because that stepping out of our daily lives and solely focusing on our craft and our creativity mm -hmm. is so rare to be able to go. I'm, I don't have to make any meals. I don't have to drive anyone anywhere. I don't have to do any work for these few days. My sole focus is my craft, is my manuscript, is my creativity. That's rarer and rarer nowadays, more and more rare nowadays. And the opportunity to do that, I think it creates this beautiful kind of like explosive bubble of magic that happens within those few days. It's like everything that was piled up and condensed inside of a writer mm -hmm. comes out because it finally has the time. I like to think of creativity, like we have a relationship with it mm -hmm. and you give time to it. It gives time to you. Exactly. And exactly. To your point, you know, there was a, uh, last summer I did three of these, not back to back, but with a week in between. And for the third retreat, our routine is to meet the writers at the train station. They take the train out from Paris and we meet them and greet them and then transport them to the chateau. And we were waiting for the sixth participant whom I'd not met. These were people I'd, I'd not met before. And I saw a woman walking down the quay toward me and she looked so anxious and so worried and, and, and so apprehensive. And I thought, oh, surely this, I don't think this is the author who applied. Well, sure enough, it was. <laughs> and as she, she had come a long, long way and she was very apprehensive about this, worried that she would be rejected or that her work wouldn't be as good as anyone else's. And by the end of the week, she was a completely different person, smiling and happy and so much part of a group that they coalesced to do another retreat next year in Italy. Some of them may still come back to Paris, but they decided that they were going to rent a house in Italy <laughs> and do a retreat among themselves. And I love that. I just think it is the most, that to me is winning. That's exactly the result that we all want to see, that people might come in with apprehensions, 
but by the end of the week, they feel completely solid and well, well grounded, well connected to others and feel that they've gotten a great deal out of it. That to me is just the most wonderful thing. Mm. And what, what do you do during that week that you think helps foster that apprehension going away and the confidence and support going up? What, what are some of the exercises or, or things or sessions that you lead that you think helps with that? Well, I think we set the stage beforehand by having each author share the first 20 pages of her manuscript with everyone else. So about four to six weeks before the, the retreat itself, everyone receives five other manuscripts or opening pages, the 20 opening pages, and they read it. So they have a good sense of what others are writing before they even arrive. So they've read it. We give very specific critique guidelines, what we'd like, not just do you like it or do you not like it, but what really worked? Did the characters come alive? Is there something more that you want to know about a particular character or about the storyline? And it's really a, a soup to nuts, A to Z critique, which authors I find have virtually always spent a great deal of time on. Then the first night we all get together and we, we have a welcome dinner and it's more focused on the social aspect. We don't immediately start hard work. We say, here we are, let's have a glass of wine, usually a bottle of champagne first, then some wine, a nice dinner. And everyone gets to meet one another and really talk about writing if they want to, or anything else, anything and everything else. So from the first evening, the stage is set for what I would call enduring friendships and trust and confidence. Then the next morning, we typically will start with a quick introduction. And then we meet with each author individually to understand what she, what her goals are, what would she like to get out of this retreat and what her concerns are, what her fears are, and I do this with a co-leader. There was two of us. We learn a lot about the women individually. Then we get together for what I call a group activity. We typically go, go to a street market. In France, they have these wonderful things called brocantes, where you, you go to a different town each weekend and everyone brings their stuff. And sometimes it's junk and sometimes it's antiques. But we spend a couple of hours doing the street market and it's really a lot of fun. And it's a way to meet one another and get to know each other's tastes and senses of humor and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then we come back and have lunch. And then we start our first craft session and the individual workshop where we sit around and spend two hours talking about your manuscript and giving you supportive feedback as well as suggestions for things we'd like to know more about. So again, we don't dive right into the hard work of writing, but we try to get to know each other as individuals first and emphasize the fact that this is going to be a friendly, supportive week together where not only will you receive good feedback on your work and help develop your manuscript, but you will you will make friends in the process and learn more about yourself. Mm, I love that. I think we forget how important it is just to be in camaraderie with other writers, that that is a huge part of the retreats. It's really important, uh, similarly in mine, that it's not just the work, work, work. It's about being able to talk with other creatives, being able to eat with them, do a fun or silly activity. You know, sometimes the women and I, we dance to silly songs or we go on a nature scavenger hunt and just doing something non-writing is often fruitful for the writing, I find. And it certainly sounds like that in yours. And 
And lastly, what is it do you think about France that makes it different than say if this were held anywhere else? What do you think France does for the retreat? Well, I, I certainly think France is a desired destination for so many travelers, writers and non-writers. And I happen to really love it. So I think my enthusiasm for the place comes through. <laughs> and our host, uh, Cynthia de Boucheron, who is the owner of the Chateau, is just a wonderful, wonderfully warm, outgoing person who has lived in France for many, many, many years now. And she knows the landscape literally and figuratively. And so she just does a spectacular job of not only feeding and caring for us and housing. I mean, she's an artist and her chateau reflects that beautiful colors and forms and designs. And her paintings are everywhere where you can look at them. But she also knows the area well. And so not only does she guide us to the right brocantes, but she knows so many interesting people. And we either go to their house, their ma mansion for dinner some nights, or they come to us bringing their crafts. There's one gentleman that she's known for years who used to live in a cave. And there, there are actually caves that are very fancy uh, residences there. And he would, Christian would have us over for dinner every session and he would host us. And we just had a one, and he himself is charming. So she knows the people and she knows the area. And I have to say that Cynthia is really, she is the eye of the storm. She is the crux of the matter and really the, the focal point for these retreats. And she has really been largely responsible for their success, in my opinion. All I do is bring people together. She's the one who, who really helps glue the group to each other and to France. Mm. It is something, though, that you talk about. If you are enthusiastic and passionate about a place, it exudes to all the people around you. And you certainly have love for France that I think even when you talk about it, I've never been. And so even when you talk about it, I get more excited to put it on my list of a place to go because of your enthusiasm. So I do think it's important that whatever retreat someone takes, that the retreat hosts really love the place that they're leading it in and, mm -hmm. and makes that place almost like a character within the retreat itself. I think that's why I love the San Miguel conference so much, because yes. I, I think you may agree that it's not just a conference. It is an experience of the town, the culture, the party that we always have where Absolutely. there is authentic food and there are dancers. And I mean, it is the culture bleeds into the conference. And that's how I think a good read should infuse itself with the place and vice versa. Very much so. And of course, because I, I know and love Paris so well, uh, Authors typically come in a couple of days beforehand, and then we'll typically go back to Paris after the retreat. And so we have various, we either have a sometimes a, a final dinner in Paris, again, optional, not required, or people will come in early and, and take tours together, walk around the city, get to know it. And then once they have bonded as a group, it makes it even more appealing to go back to the city afterwards and spend a few days back there going to museums and just enjoying one another's company for a few more days. And so I always urge people to try to extend their stay before and after by a few days. Plus, you know, from a jet lag perspective, most people are coming from the U.S. And mm -hmm. it's much better, I find, to come in a few days early so that you get a chance to adjust a bit and you're not jet lagged for the first half or the whole conference or the retreat. That always makes it a little difficult. 
<laughs> yes, yes. So tell us in closing, what do you have coming up that you're really excited about? Where are you going to be in the coming months and any future retreats that you're offering? Well, uh, I have yet to update my site, but yes, I will be offering two or probably three retreats next summer, again, at La Poterie, which is my friend Cynthia's Chateau. Two will be for women only, and one will be, again, mixed with men, because we've had many men, including a couple who live in France, who really want to come to this retreat. And so I thought, well, why not? I don't want to discriminate against them. Yeah. But that really is going to be my focal point. So far, no conference is scheduled. I think many of the conferences that we have all attended and enjoyed in the past are largely virtual now. And yeah. I think it's a real shame because there is something to be said for getting together in person and being able to not only meet people face to face, but to your point, enjoying the ambiance of San Miguel, going to dances and, and parties together. And those are fewer and fewer, which is a real shame. And I think with the ongoing threat of COVID, we will probably not see a complete resurgence of those conferences. I think so much has been moved to Zoom now and people yeah. are comfortable with it. It's certainly easier and, and less expensive to do a conference on Zoom. But I think you lose a lot in the process. And it's one of the reasons that I really am determined to continue to offer these conferences, these retreats in person, because I think there is so much to be gained from them. Yes, I do think that oh, just the in-person is it's irreplaceable. Um, mm -hmm. We had my husband, as you know, is a chef. And so we had led these retreats together. And then for almost two years, no retreats. Our first mm -hmm. retreat back last May in our favorite place, Door County, Wisconsin, is oh, our favorite place to be in the summertime. Just the lake and the bluffs and sunsets and sailboats and cherries and cherry pies, right? <laughs> yes, cherry pie everything. Yeah. And I mean, it's just the best. Mm -hmm. When we got to see the women in person, and I got to just be in company with people that I had only seen on zoom for a couple of years. It was so fulfilling to the soul. I felt like I was just buzzing on energy and it really filled me for the whole summer. Mm -hmm. Um, just to be able to see other people be in community, not just me being with them, but them being with each other. Mm -hmm. It's really, really powerful. So yes, I, I hope that our, our retreats can continue because there's really nothing like it. There's nothing like it. One other thing I wanted to mention was that uh, Cynthia's husband, Emery de Moucheron, who is a Frenchman, and I have been talking about doing what we call La Semaine de la Couleur, which is a week of color. And it would be more focused on visual arts, but people who love design and color and are amateurs at it might want to come to this week and we haven't quite focused on, we haven't figured out what the focal point is going to be, except for design and color. So I mentioned that only as a work in progress. We haven't quite decided what that will be, but once we have nailed it down, that will be on my uh, site as well. So for those creatives listening in who are not writers, but are interested in, again, form, design, color, we are feverishly working on that right now. Oh, that sounds dreamy. <laughs> so for anyone who would like to find you, please let us know your website or any social media handles you want to share. My website is www.aprileberhart.com or april at aprileberhart.com. Pretty straightforward. 
this does prompt me to update my website because I've been a little <laughs> lazy about it, but the, the basic information is there. And uh, now that we've had this conversation, I'll get on it and actually update the website for next summer with coming attractions, including the three writers retreats and possibly, hopefully this the week of color uh, that we might do there as well. Oh, lovely and lovely. You are a generous soul. You are such a good connector. You are such a good supporter of women writers and writers in general. And I'm so, so happy that you came on today. So well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I've so enjoyed our friendship over the years. And I, I really appreciate this opportunity to talk more about what we both do to support women writers and the writing world in general. So thank you, Nadine. Don't you just love her? She is so kind, so generous, so honest, but in the most encouraging way. I urge you to check out aprileverhart.com. I'll put it in the show notes as well, the link to her website, because she's one of the good ones, my friends. She is, she is. And if you are also wanting a retreat, in France next summer. You should definitely check her out. What an amazing soul. Thank you so much, Michelle Rado, my incredible producer. And as always, remember everyone, every heart has a story and every story has a heart. See you next week. <laughs>